So welcome to episode two of Roll for Enterprise. And so much for all the people who didn't think we'd even make it this far. This week, just because we're all sitting in our home offices, we thought we'd talk about working from home, both what that means for individuals and what that might mean for companies and for the wider economy. And suffice it to say, I think we all have plenty of personal experience here. But I thought, uh, Mike, maybe you could lead off from uh, your perspective, because you're probably the most hands-on of all of us on this. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, let's face it, everybody is, uh, is. I mean, I think they said 60% of, of working or currently employed people are now working from home. I think um, what's surprising and, and what you're starting to hear is that companies are saying potentially people won't come into the office or won't come into the office as much anymore, right? And the need for real estate and, and how well people are, are able to work with the given tools and everything, they're actually, you know, thinking real hard about the need for office space, how those offices look. So it's a, a quite interesting dynamic um, and it has all sorts of um, changes to people's lives, people's health, um, and then what it means overall for yeah, real estate economy and, and so on and so forth. But um, I think the most interesting thing is, yeah, the impact on people and uh, again, the search for talent, right? Because the talent pool will completely change uh, once companies don't care about your location if this becomes commonplace. Yeah, exactly. That's where it gets interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine and he's in management at a early stage San Francisco startup and they've already walked away from their lease uh, on the office. And it's, he's not the only one I know of doing that. It's, uh, it's going to be an interesting, interesting time. I mean, I've been remote for over a decade. It's been a long time since I've even had a manager in the same time zone as me. So I'm, I'm not the best person to, to comment on this from one perspective. It's not new to me. I was already pretty well set up. Uh, I'd set up my life around the assumption that I had, you know, a home office and a desk in my home office and a quiet place. And I think lots of people are struggling with it more because they were thrown into it. And maybe people had made a choice to live in a city like New York, like San Francisco, because of the job market, because of the local amenities. And when you live in a city with such an expensive real estate market, you know, even if you're making Facebook money, you're still living in a relatively small space, you might not have room for home office, you might not have a spare room in your house that you can just go into and close the door. Uh, you might be sharing a room with other people who are also all trying to work from home all around the kitchen table. And uh, that's um, that's the interesting dynamic as the shutdown gets longer and longer. The first week or two, people are like, oh, it's fun, it's fun. Then we saw people getting a bit stressed out about it. But what's interesting is, and I don't think this is privileged information, God, I hope not, but <laughs> at my company, we run an in-house survey of sentiment, uh, just how people are feeling during the, the lockdown. Uh and one of the interesting questions has been, you know, how eager are you to get back to work, which they added a few weeks back. And that's actually been dropping. Fewer and fewer people are eager to go back to work the longer this thing goes on. People are starting to acclimatize to get used to the idea this is in for the long haul. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think, you know, I think the question is these workers that are looking to leave, let's say, Silicon Valley or New York, what happens to those salaries? I read an article where Twilio is, is questioning that right now, um, you know, how they're going to go ahead and what that's going to look like. So I think there's some challenges there. And then you brought up a good point, Mike. Open workspaces were taking off for a while. Do we go back to cubicle? 
Is that the new norm when they go back to work? You know, what does that look like? I have heard about a lot of companies looking at um, re redoing their office space. And there's actually some here in town who are uh, bringing back cubicles, right? I think the um, open office floor plan is, um, yeah, is going to become a thing of the past. So people are looking at bringing back cubicles, bringing back potentially more offices and kind of turning around 360. I think the other thing that's, that's happening is, Oh, man, I, I see people investing in their home offices. I mean, uh, I, I'm sitting on a brand new chair because I got fed up of my uh, my old chair. It feels great, but I but I think you know people are looking at like the right desk, the right equipment, the right chair, and I think that's going to also uh, take off to some extent as people want to get um, comfortable or more comfortable uh, than their office, and then they're they're starting to build it as their own, right? I mean, they're not spending any more money on on gas to drive to work on um, yeah, transportation if they were. Um, so your your time, I mean, your commute time goes away. So I, I think that's, you know, starting to move in other directions. How about privacy? I think privacy, that's, that's interesting because like now you have, a, you know, a bunch of privacy questions. There are some companies that are implementing software and solutions, forcing their workers to, to stay on video and, and monitoring them. So, I, I, you know, for me, I wonder how that's going to how that's going to affect all this. Yeah, and that was a big question in the early days of this when people thought it might be the sort of thing that you could weather, you could just hunker down and get through it quickly. And people were saying, you know, the, the big banks, the trading floors, if you have one of those Bloomberg terminals with two massive screens, A, it's not easy to move that, suddenly set it up at home, not everyone has the space. But even if you do, the investment banker who's using that thing, he's, uh, he has access, he or she has access to a huge amount of privileged information. And suddenly they were on speakerphone within, uh, you know, within hearing range of other people, either in the family or through a shared wall or whatever. Uh, there were lots of questions raised about that. So it's, uh, it's a very tough balance. So I think the good companies will figure out quickly and just as uh, it's been in the past with uh, the, the more intrusive surveillance uh, systems, uh, there are very few situations where that's warranted. If you're responsible for moving a, you know, gigabucks of money back and forth, uh, potentially money that's not your own, then okay, fair enough. There's some extra surveillance that's warranted uh, for that type of situation. But if you're the type of boss who's trying to surveil your entire team and micromanage what they do, and you're not building a, a good, healthy environment. I mean, let, let's face it. There are companies who are monitoring employees, who are monitoring, you know, what they have up on their screen, what windows they are, uh, key clicks and and all that. And, and, and it's being done by some pretty prominent companies. I think what you're going to start to see, though, is really a divide. That the, the divide between, and I'll put them into three buckets, but you have your digital natives, right? Your digital native companies that are, are, are true tech companies. You have those companies who have kind of pulled ahead in digital transformation. The tools are there. Everybody's ready to use them. Everybody's using them. And then you have those who have kind of the real kind of brick and mortar companies who have fallen behind on the digital transformation um, uh, slope. And they're going to continue to fall further and further behind because to accelerate, to catch up to the others, I, I think that's going to be too big for them. But, you know, then you look at, you know, an employee on the job hunt. Yeah, what's more attractive to them now? Yeah, we'll see how that plays out, though. I'm not sure uh, because it's true that the tech industry has a head start because they're a bunch of people 
like me, like Zach, who've been remote for a long time. And so the companies accommodate that, but they accommodate us usually by exception. Most places I've worked have uh, been, you know, single digit percentages of employees are fully remote. Uh, and so the expectation is, you know, there's some core core team that's in the head office and we get together once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is for a big planning meeting. Uh, and then we disperse back to, to our offices. So even for the companies that were set up for that, switching to 100% remote is still a big ask. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see which of those plays out better, the companies that are having to go from a standing start or the companies that had it as an exception for those weirdos, but really most of us are going to be in the office. And another interesting factor is the people who are in work right now, that's one thing, that's what we're talking about. But what about people who are just entering the job market right now, as you were alluding to, if I'm job hunting right now, and there are still job postings out there that say, sorry, no remote. It's like, why? Why do I have to be at my home within the same area code of the office if I'm going to be in my home and not able to go to the office? I can be the other side of the planet. Don't worry about it. Uh, but then there are people doing... Uh, internships, for instance, how do you manage a remote intern? I mean, interning is a big benefit of that is being at the elbow of a more senior person and being able to ask all the dumb questions and just watch what they do and overhear and listen and learn by osmosis. As that's going to be the sort of thing that's going to be toughest to migrate. Much, over. much harder. I, I think, I mean, onboarding becomes much more difficult and and I, yeah, maybe I'm I'm talking from a more traditional place where you know you bring someone into the office and you you onboard them. You really, um, you know, from my IBM days, I would say we would turn their blood blue. Um, but um, yeah, <laughs> Give them yeah, the yeah, I think onboarding becomes more difficult. But then back to the location question. I mean, if you are really are looking for the best talent, who cares where they are in this world? Just get the best talent, and you know to you know. If you want to compare salaries of New York and other places and, and companies who are, are saying that, I mean, the best talent will always cost you top dollar, no matter what. It just depends where you want to be. And, and I think companies will have a, a tough time uh, making those decisions. Oh, very definitely. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad in uh, my employer, full disclosure, I work for MongoDB. So we're still doing our summer internship class. So we're going to be figuring this out live. And uh, I'm, I'm very glad to see that because my internship way back when at the turn of the century uh, was instrumental to getting me started. And I would have hated to, to have missed that opportunity just because I couldn't physically go to an office. And and maybe these people will actually be better placed in their career because they're already doing remote education right now. And they're probably using all the same tools, all the Zooms and Google Hangouts and whatnot. Uh, and maybe they, they then they do a remote internship and they start into their first job and it's fully remote. Are they going to have a leg up on those of, uh, those of us who've been doing in-person jobs and have to relearn how to do that in a remote world? Yeah, but they, they'll miss that office banter, right? Or maybe never never know what it really was, right? They'll become maybe a bit more formal than, than what we're used to. Um, so maybe there's an advantage, but also a, a disadvantage there. I, I think also what's interesting is if you think about, I mean, if people are seeing value now 
And we've had this like impromptu work from home where your whole family's in, in the house with you. I mean, if kids do start going back to school and then now you're working from home and you don't have that distraction for some people, I think if people think they've, they've been productive this far, I mean, it's going to get much scarier when they get even more productive when, you know, there's none of the <laughs> other distractions, right? I don't know how you guys see that. Well, I per- oh, you definitely. Know, I, well, I think I'm working longer. I, I'm, you know, I think I talked to some of my friends as well that are now working from home and they're telling me they're working longer than they did before, more hours. Um, what are you seeing where you are, Mike? It, it's a it's a bit the same. You know why? Because the, the boundary um, becomes a little more blurred, right? Um, I think... You know, your your PC is basically always on. It's not like you have to get home and then turn it on to do something. So if you want to, you know, rush in and do something for five minutes because you just remembered it, you could just, you know, walk into your office. It's it, it's easy just to, to get stuff done quickly, right? So, yeah, maybe the the other thing I, I think that's really happening is, you know, this this eight to five, nine to five, whatever you want to call it, it's it's becoming even more warped. So, it's uh, it's this always on culture, and I think that's where we've been going for a long time. But it just makes it so much easier when you're when you're working from home. So I think that's what people say. Um, but you'll start to see also some. I mean, I, I think people will also carve out time for themselves, right? The time they're not commuting, uh, potentially waking up a little later, uh, potentially exercising at home. I think that's also uh, one of the big movements we're we're seeing. So I, I think there's a give and take there, right? So. I, I think you might. I think we lost you for a moment yeah. there, Mike. Can you repeat the very end of the sentence? Uh, no, I, I was saying that, yeah, I think their their working hours have shifted, right? There, there's a bit of, um, yeah, blur between, yeah, when they work and, and how they work. So it might not be maybe that they're working uh, more, but maybe different times of the day, right? Uh, yeah. So that's certainly something that I always did in working from home. So in pre-lockdown days, my pattern when I was at home, when I wasn't on the roads would be, you know, wake up, read emails, respond to anything urgent over coffee and whatnot. But then I would have a personal moment when I took the, the kids to school. I walk my kids to school every morning. And maybe I'd listen to, you know, work-related podcast on the way back or something. So it wasn't fully downtime, but I was mostly off. Then I get back and I put in some work, uh, but always with the option that, you know, if I have an hour between meetings and nothing pressing, I might run an errand or do a workout or whatever. But what I found and what I've been advising people to do as they get into this remote work is it is important to set that boundary, even if you don't have a, an office that you can decide not to go to after dinner even if you just make the rule that, okay, I'm going to work during the day for my laptop and then I'm going to close the laptop, uh, unless, you know, dire emergencies, but that thing that you think of, that quick email that you need to dash off, fine. If it really is a quick thing, you can do it from your phone. If you're opening your laptop again after dinner, that sort of thing, that's probably a sign that something's not right if you start to do that too regularly. And I say that from experience because I used to be like that. For me, it was kids that forced me to take a moment because sometimes the kids just need you around right there and you need to make them dinner. You can't say, oh, I'm just going to do this and we'll have dinner an hour later. The kids don't really understand that. <laughs> so that, that's a factor in keeping you on that schedule. And that's been also a little bit tougher to maintain during the, uh, the coronavirus uh, lockdown was my wife's in the same boat. And so the two of us are at home trying to juggle jobs and 
the kids needs attention as well. So, you know, if one of us is in a do not disturb moment, well, the other one has to be looking after the kids because no one else can come to the house. And uh, so that's, uh, that's been the more interesting factor for me. So me personally, I don't think I've been working more. Uh, I may even have been working less because of juggling the routine. Um, so there's a need to be aware of that that's going on in people's lives. Yeah, I think that goes back to Dominic, you and I have been doing this well. I think we have a routine down packed. I, I agree with you, by the way, you know, it took me a while to get there. I think it's everyone else now that's working from home. How are they handling this? I think, you know, they'll companies will help them. I'm sure they'll figure out their own schedules to your point earlier, Mike, you know, sooner or later, they'll, you know, they'll disconnect and they'll understand that. But, I, you know, I want to go back to privacy because I, I really am curious as where's that delineation, you know, where's, where's that demarcation, you know, they're letting, uh, you're letting these companies and these HR policies into your house, into your living room. So I, I'm just, I'm curious about that. I, I do think there's something, um, there. I'm not sure how some company is going to handle that. Um, but I... yeah, let me throw another asterisk in there is uh, in the age of bring your own device. So I have a, a work supplied laptop. And I assume I, I don't think my company's doing anything creepy, but anything I do on there belongs to them. So I try to keep things separate. But I would object very much to uh, an employer getting into my personal devices and my personal email account or anything like that. And it's hard sometimes to keep them separate. You know, I, I set up a Mac from scratch. I upgraded a, an old Mac mini with a flash drive and maxed out its RAM. Um, highly recommended, by the way. That puts 100 euros into it, and that thing flies. Um, but yeah, I just signed in with my Apple ID, and it had all of my work accounts, including accounts from past <laughs> employment. And it was like, do you want to see this calendar? And I, no, no, I really don't. This is a personal machine. Take that away. <laughs> I, I think, I mean... Privacy is always going to be an issue, right? And and it's no different than when we're in the office. I think the the worry is that it's going to be a bit easier for people to share the information, because I think if there's if there is stuff that you're talking about privately at work, you don't have that that banter uh, in the office. So potentially you bring that home. I, I think that is a concern to companies, but again, they're going to have to they're going to have to make sure that they hire some privacy minded people. And, and this is where I think maybe if we look at kind of the talent pool, maybe you're looking at some different skill sets about people who are, who are, who are going to respect that a little more. Um, and potentially the security portfolio tools uh, start to change because of this, right. And in, in terms of looking at data leakage and, and, and what's there. Um, I think it also becomes a little more difficult with spouses sharing offices because I, I, I see that happening in, in quite a few uh, people's personal offices, I would say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Luckily, my wife's in a completely different business. And so the, the issue is more just one of managing noise. <laughs> so that we're not both on calls at the same time. But yeah, if you're in the same industry, which happens very often, maybe even working for competitors, and I know some couples who do that and somehow make it work, I'd struggle, but they make it work. That would be a big issue. I wonder how VDI is, is impacted. I, I would wonder, uh, I would imagine there'd be an uptick in VDI um, with work from home. What do you, what do you see, Mike? Do you, do you guys we, use VDI? We, we do see a, an uptick, especially, I mean, if, if you think about, I mean, if you start to look at like hard hit areas for, for COVID, I mean, are they on board people? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, VDI is an easy solution because you can't get them a laptop, can't build them uh, your own uh, system. So yeah, build them a, a, a cloud virtual instance and, and have them go at it. And then you, you start to control everything, right? Uh, a bit of a different experience. And, and that's a bit what we're doing um, 
with, with some hires lately. Um, and I think that that makes sense, right? For for the environment you're in today. Um, and then you're you're accessing it, of course, through your your personal machine because you don't have um, a corporate one, let's say. So yeah, I, it would be interesting to get some statistics there. But I would say that yeah, VDI is probably um, having an uptick uh, quite significantly. One other thing that's been on my mind is yeah. SD WAN for the home. It makes me wonder where is the edge now for for some offices. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know. I think about this and I think, well, what does that edge look like? Is that edge uh, the home office for some people? And then I think about the impact on IoT, uh, not just from healthcare, but uh, all this is going to be very pervasive and uh, it brings on a new set of challenges. Um, yeah, uh, Dominic, I'll let you talk about the SD-WAN since you giggled. No, I was just thinking there's uh, the classic situation that so many people are encountering. I hear it over and over. Oh, when I'm signed into the work of VPN, I can't print to my local printer. I like, well, I know. <laughs> and uh, so that, that's a question here. Do you mandate the use of the VPN or do you just assume, uh, you know, the, the edges everywhere? I uh, just say, okay, everything's going to go over uh, HTTPS and maybe we mandate two-factor auth, but we don't try to secure the network connection as such, just the, the application connection. And so there are lots of different things uh, coming in there. And again, it's going to depend on the industries. So I was curious, yeah, Mike, what, if you can share, what type of profiles do you have using VDI? It's the sort of thing I never see in my world, but I realize I'm a little insular in the types of people that I speak to. I, I, I would say it's, what, it's mainly the administration functions, there. right? I mean, there are some, um, engineering tools that are coming out that are, are starting to get to the point where VDI is acceptable for engineers, but it, it's not quite there yet, right? So the engineers still have like big rigs at home and and that's the best way for them to work or big rigs in, in, in the office, right? So it, it's not so much in in um, uh, with some high compute jobs. I think with the with people that need high compute, they're still carrying that. On, on the point of the edge, I mean, Look, I mean, most applications have moved pure web-based, right? So I, I think, yeah. and, and as we move through uh, through COVID and this work from home, I mean, let's face it, most companies were not built to have everybody hit their VPN. I mean, v VPN was was built for, you know, a, a set segment of either uh, remote workers, on-the-road workers, or, or people who really needed to get to, um, uh, you know, assets that you have within uh, the corporate network. But I think most people, as they've gone to uh, to more cloud-based tools, you know, you, you look at Office 365 and such. I mean, I don't know that people uh, really need to use VPN all that much, except for some specific roles. So I, I think even the network, I mean, I, I think the corporate network has, has changed substantially. And it's only, let's say, you know, uh, vital information that's within the corporate network. The, the rest of it is, is outside in the cloud. Uh, potentially, you have... Uh, multi-factor and um, the same identity controlling all of it. But yeah, I don't think it's within the, the corporate network anymore. So, you know, internet's becoming much, much more uh, important. I mean, I know there's some companies who have been trying to take advantage and, and offering, um, you know, home SD-WAN solutions or home VPN solutions, but I don't see it really as, as a need as the, the world is changing. Yeah, maybe that's the digital native, digital transformation kind of, um, you know, people are starting to separate themselves or companies that are starting to separate themselves in that space. Right. Which is kind of why I asked the question about uh, VDI, because I, I kind of lumped all of those into the the same bucket of if you have 
a fat client that needs to work, there are two things you can do. You can have the fat client run locally in an encrypted tunnel to its backend, or you can have a virtual desktop setup that lets you access a fat client running somewhere else. Um, but with the move to, to web apps, and I live mostly inside browser apps uh, for corporate job stuff, uh, there's not much need for it, but I stand ready to be corrected. I think so. I mean, do you really think the edge is moving, um, Zach? Or no? I mean, I think I think potentially it could. It depends. I think companies are at different stages right now uh, in this digital transformation. I think we touched on it earlier. I think it depends where you are. Uh, there are some companies, uh, you know, that haven't made much progress. So this will put some pressure on them uh, to think through that. And I, I, also, if you look at. Um, you know, uh, for even from an IoT perspective and, and things like that, I, I think, and that IoT, I, I believe, will also push into, you know, potentially the home office as well. So I, I think it depends. I, I'm, I'm curious myself. I, you know, um, you know how some companies are handling that. I think, I think you're a little more advanced, Mike, where you are. So I think your perception is, is definitely different than, um, than maybe some others. But yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I do want to bring up one note. Um, I read where the British Parliament made history by having uh, approving a measure to allow some business to be done remotely through Zoom. I, I just thought it was interesting. I, th I thought about you, Dominic. Oh, there you go, yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm out in Italy, and it's always interesting working for U.S. companies that are, you know, take a leading edge. Uh, and then leaving my home office and going out here uh, where the adoption of tech is a lot more patchy, um, and just over the past couple of years, I would say there's been a sudden acceleration. I don't know whether it's been maturity of the tech or maturity of, uh, you know, the, the wider environment, but even, you know, the Italian public sector that you would not normally expect to be tech leading edge organization, uh, the, there started to be, you know, really cool, smart apps and online services really usable as well. Uh, so. And I've seen that accelerating as well. Italy's been a laggard for electronic payments for all number of reasons. And now suddenly contactless is a really, really attractive factor for, for many people. So like market stalls and things like that, who were previously cash only businesses, uh, many of them have shifted to delivery and they'll hold out a contactless terminal and you tap it with your phone or your contactless credit card. And you know you don't have to exchange potentially dirty. I think there's two things wonders. driving that though. I think it's not only, um, you know, a generational shift in those organizations with, with younger workers coming in, but also the user base becoming a little more younger um, and, and, and wanting and demanding, more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember a time where, where credit cards were, were looked at like um, uh, they were crazy by the Italians. Right. So, um, and, and I think that yeah. is changing. So, um, yeah, we will see more of that. I, I think the missed opportunity in all of this, I mean, if 5G was ready um, across most countries in, in the West, I think this would have been potentially uh, a watershed moment for 5G uh, just because of all the bandwidth demands. Yeah. I mean, specifically in Europe, right? I don't think we felt this in, uh, in the US because uh, let's take Netflix, for example. I think Netflix makes up a large portion of prime time bandwidth in the US. But in Europe, I've heard that they've had to turn down from HD to standard definition Netflix because of uh, of home bandwidth capacity in a lot of places, right? Just the demand as people want work from home. Yeah. Um, 
and I think if, if 5G was ready, this would have been, you know, uh, the telecom providers uh, moment to, to really have a moment here, I think. So that was. Yeah, and school children at home playing Fortnite <laughs> as well. So, yeah, that, that's one. 5G is one thing that didn't happen. The other miss, and sorry, Zach, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but the other miss that I think is really interesting is VR. You'd have thought VR would have had its moment right now, everyone doing conferences and events uh, in Second Life or something like that, and it just hasn't happened. I mean, people have been doing events in Animal Crossing, for goodness sake. Uh, I'm sure the next step is going to be doing them in Fortnite. Uh, the kids are already going to concerts in Fortnite. Maybe next will be a, a conference in Fortnite. And if someone doesn't like your speech, they can lob a grenade at you or something. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, yeah, yeah the conference space, yeah, the conference no space and I think uh, like offices as conference centers, I think that's also going to take shape now. But you're right, VR has its moment. I, I think as conferences move virtual and, I, I, you know, I, I can't see packing in 10,000 people into a conference anymore. I think it'll give many more people accessibility to that. You were so, going to say something, Zach? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to touch on that. But before I touch on that, my SD-WAN comment was around the path awareness capabilities. So at home, internet, you, to your point earlier, the ability to leverage an SD-WAN solution for like, you know, path awareness more so than anything else. So I think that would solve some of these problems, the ability to, to you know, have that place at the home office where they can prioritize traffic, um, you know, et cetera. Around the events, we actually had our first virtual event this week. Um, I've heard some good things from other people, but I have to tell you, it's been a miserable experience for us, uh, this event. I, I, I don't see the engagement. Uh, I wasn't too impressed with, you know, how it was set up. Um, one of the things, though, that I do wonder about is, is how will this impact you know, um, AR going forward or how these events will evolve. And I think you're right, Mike, I think they're here to stay. These virtual events are not going anywhere. So, you know, personally, we're about to figure out how can we make those more impactful because it's, uh, it's hit or miss apparently. Yeah. So it definitely mirrors the remote employment conversation. Uh, if you have an event and people have to travel to New York or San Francisco, you know, God help us, Orlando, um, to go to the event that excludes a whole bunch of people who can't take the time off work or can't persuade work to pay uh, for the travel and accommodation, et cetera, et cetera, that these are expensive events. So even once we move back to having in-person events, I hope that we keep uh, much more of a remote component than just sort of token. Uh, here's a live stream of the keynote and off you go, uh, which has been the level of remote access many events have had. But I do think it's going to be a big shakeup for the event space. Uh, stuff like AWS reInvent, I don't think that can come back in the form it had before. In 2019, that was already effectively a remote event, and nobody could go to the keynotes. Even if you were in Vegas, you still couldn't go to the keynotes. You were still watching it on a live stream. So at that point, what's the point of going to Vegas for many people? You start to question that. Uh, so splitting that up into much smaller events that are delivered maybe over a longer time, or they're just recorded so people can watch them uh, whenever they feel like it, that potentially gives more value to more people. Uh, what I personally expect and hope, quite frankly, to see is some of the smaller events stepping up, uh, the ones that were still small enough that you could have serendipitous hallway track conversations and just meet people that you would not expect to have a conversation with and discover something interesting. Uh, so the DevOps days, the monitoramas, these types of events. So I really hope we get those back because uh, in the same way that we were saying the office banter, that's the aspect of conferences that 
I really not sure I see uh, an easy way to move online. Live stream the keynote, sure. Uh, do your lab remotely through Zoom and whiteboarding and all of these things, fine. Uh, but the sort of serendipity, I'm not sure as I see that. Unless maybe VR takes off. And today's news was Apple just confirmed they bought a VR company. And so maybe as it, as it has been with so many technologies, everyone flails around for a while and then Apple comes in and shows everyone how to do it. And then everyone does it Apple's way. Uh, so maybe this time next year we'll all have IVR. Yeah, not revolutionary, it. but um, they, they know how to make the evolution of a, of a technology happen. So I, I think that we have to take, give exactly. our hat tip to Apple. I think on the on the conference side, you're you're absolutely right. But don't you see some of that like casual conversation, the meeting of people? Don't you see that moving to uh, like Reddit and and some Slack channels? I, I, I've seen lately a lot of Slack channels get created for you know industry specific uh, topics. So lots of like you know thoughtful people having thoughtful conversations there. I think for a while that started to shift to Twitter, but Twitter has kind of a an issue there. So I think Reddit and, and Slack are starting to nice yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think Slack <laughs> and, and uh, Reddit are starting to take that away. And I, I, I've seen a bit of, of a change, especially on the Slack side, I would say. Yeah, and th that's what I was saying. The good events were already doing that, so I hope people can learn from that and accelerate that. Uh, I spoke at Monitorama a couple of years ago already. Each session had its own dedicated Slack channel within the wider event Slack, so that people, instead of having to you know storm the stage after an event, you could pose a question and the speaker could answer it more leisurely. That conversation could continue perhaps uh, over a longer period of time, even after the event had uh, concluded. And we're doing the same thing. I mean, MongoDB.Live is going to be 100% remote this year because, of course, it is. Um, and so we're hoping to see – we're already seeing huge numbers uh, of registrations compared to past years. How many of those will convert? Open question, because someone who registers for an in-person event and buys plane tickets, they're probably going to show up. Someone who registers for an online event – uh, it's you know down to the wire on the day they don't feel like joining your events and <laughs> that's it. So we'll see what happens with that. But we're trying to figure out what these these channels might look like. We're trying to staff live booths with experts exactly as you would have on a conference floor and doing that in a follow the sun fashion. So it's not just in a New York New, me, New York time zone, but if someone's in you know, Australia, they'll still have that experience of speaking to a live expert in their own time zone. So these are the things that I hope we we adopt and continue, uh, even after things. Uh, How touch hard do you guys think it's going to be from your perspective for smaller companies to get the attention? Right. I mean, at conferences you would walk by, um, you know, the vendor booths, right, and people would try to get attention. I mean, how hard is it now to get that attention, especially if you're not a known name, right? I mean, that must be extremely difficult. Um, in, in this day and age? I think it comes down to a couple of things. I actually think it's a positive uh, for smaller companies. Some of the larger companies have massive sales forces. They're out there pounding the pavement. I think this equals the playing field, but it really falls on marketing and how you're going to get the message out and you have to think differently on how you're going to do that. Um, uh, but So my opinion is for startups, I think there's an opportunity here if you have a succinct message and uh, you can find unique ways to get in front of your audience. I, I think the playing field's level. Uh, it's all about, you know, how are you going to... Um, you know, how are you going to make it happen? 
Yeah, so lots of opportunities uh, if we can get through this. Learning experiences, the trick will be taking the right lessons from it. And of course, trying to stay safe long enough to take advantage of all of that. Okay, that's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, so I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, so thank you, Mike. Thank you, Zach. Uh, and we'll record again next week. I think by this point, we've probably done enough that uh, maybe next week we'll start talking about ourselves a little bit and our personal experiences. So I hope you're interested in hearing that. Thanks, Thanks guys. Everyone. Talk next week. See you next week. Thank you, guys.